Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. From now to the end of April, we are going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to journey with the disciples up to the cross on Good Friday, and then from there, the Easter narratives of Luke, some of the most beautiful stories in Scripture. We hope you can join us maybe here online on this podcast, or even better in person. We'd, we'd love to meet you. So we hope you'd consider joining with us on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. right here in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can also find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Uh, we think even of... Um, that passage from the Psalms and from Isaiah that speak of the one who is humble and, and, and listening and attentive to you. And God, I pray um, be, because we know that we are so hard-hearted, just like the disciples long ago, and we don't hear what you're telling us so often, Lord, that you'd unstop our ears and soften our hearts uh, to receive from you. Um, Lord, it's true that, that we come bearing the weight of our weeks, of bearing deep sorrows and and some uh, with real questions about uh, who you are and what the scriptures say or what we believe and all this, God. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would be attentive to you and that you would show up and be present and teach us. Uh, we say uh, with Samuel long ago, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Amen. Okay, so I saw a BuzzFeed article on my um, Newsfeed this week, and I just want to to confess to you that I actually I, I I see I see inside what's going on as soon as I say that you're like you do you click on it Peter, Buzzfeed really, and um, I should not have done that, but I did right because most of their articles are worthless. But I was intrigued by the title, and this is what the title was. I asked AI what Europeans think, America, think of Americans from every single state looks like, and the results are just plain mean. This is a long title, but it intrigued me. So let me tell you some of what AI thinks people from different states look like. Um, the man in Alaska was just in this like parka, literally in just a bunch of snow all around him like this. It's like the whole image. The guy from Arkansas, he kind of looked like a bit of a hobo, wild, ratty hair, an unbuttoned flannel all the way down, mangy beard. This girl from California had really cool sunglasses on, you know, like circular ones that were kind of reflective and she just looked really cool. She had this wavy hair that was like perfectly manicured. Um, a little dog in her arm, even smaller than Teddy, which sometimes people make fun of me for. Uh, and coffee in both hands. She looked cool, surrounded by palm trees. The guy from Colorado, he was scaling this mountain, climbing, and he had a huge backpack on. He was decked out in cool hiking clothes. You know, he would have been sponsored by Patagonia, just like Jim Gaffigan. Um, and he had like two weeks stubble on his face. He was bald, but with wild looking hair, and he looked like some guy who just spent a lot of time in the mountains. The Georgia guy was seated up on the top of a wooden ladder, just surrounded by peach groves. New Jersey was a bald dude who clearly looked like he was of Italian descent. He was wearing a t-shirt, which had lots of marinara splattered all over it, and he was eating this big plate of spaghetti with his hands. 
Sorry, New Jersey. Um, Washington, where I'm from, there was a man who looked maybe about 60, and he literally was like, like in this huge puddle on the side of the road. And I don't know how this, they, this, they figured this out, but he was in this enormous puddle with a raincoat on and a hat on. It was kind of like a bucket hat, but it was leather. My dad actually has one of these. This is not a picture of my dad. Um, but he was just in this puddle in the rain with a raincoat on. And since you're all wondering, Pennsylvania had a little boy, maybe like eight years old, a little more on the heavy set side with an enormous chocolate bar. And there was just chocolate on his face. Um, now, I don't know what you expected when I read to you the title of that uh, BuzzFeed article, especially when you know, the last part of that article says, the results are just plain mean. Um, I actually thought for the most part they were sort of kind, apart from like Arkansas and a couple other states. Um, and they were sort of reflective of what's at least kind of true, sort of what you would expect. I mean, a huge chocolate bar for Pennsylvania isn't that crazy, right? But you also want to say, hey, there's more to it. We have the Susquehanna River, among other beautiful natural resources. Um, but we come, here's, here's what, I, what I want to say. The, you know, this, this AI-generated thing was what Europeans sort of think of Americans. And we also have our sort of idea of what we expect somebody to look like or how they act in the world and, and these kinds of things. And so before we begin our looking at our text this morning, I kind of want to actually pose a couple questions to you. And uh, the first one is this. If you're a Christian, what did you expect the Christian life to be like? If you're a Christian, what did you expect the Christian life to be like? Maybe before you became a Christian and when you were exploring Christian faith, maybe you had some friends who were Christians um, you knew some people that were going to church, and uh, maybe you thought, you know, this might heal my marriage difficulties. Maybe my kids will obey me better. Um, maybe I'll have great health, and my bank account will be packed. You know, that kind of thing. So you gave your life to Jesus. You had sort of expectations, maybe. This is what the Christian life is going to be like. Um, let me ask a different kind of question. If you're not a Christian this morning, um, what do you expect Christians to be like? You enter into a church space, and maybe you come in and you think like, uh, "I gotta, I gotta at least dress well for church. I gotta be on my best behavior." I mean, maybe, maybe what you think uh, is self-righteous. Uh, know-it-alls. Um, maybe you think Christians are kind and inviting. I hope that's what you experience here. Um, maybe you think Christians look like you, or maybe you think they look the opposite of you. Um, maybe you think they look just like Pr President Biden, of, of Christian, you know, Catholics. Maybe like President, former President Trump. Um, I read this week in Christianity Today, maybe some of you read that article. Um, there was a Gallup poll that was recently done. They do these studies every year. And this year, they found that uh, fewer than a third of Americans, th fewer than a third of people that live in the United States, 
rate clergy as highly honest or ethical? Fewer than a third rate Christian clergy as highly honest or ethical. Um, The article stated this. People are more likely to believe in the moral standards held by nurses. Some of you are nurses. Police officers and chiropractors. Than their religious leaders. Some of you might need to hear this. This is the next sentence. Clergy are still more trusted than politicians, lawyers, and journalists. (laughs) Uh, Interestingly, uh, the ratings were actually the same across political differences, political parties. The big differences were actually generationally. uh, Gen X is being those who who, uh, rated clergy with the lowest. Um, Older millennials, which would be my generation, So basically, 10 years on either side of me were the people that rated uh, clergy the lowest. Actually, older people, boomers and beyond, and then younger folk, those younger than millennials, actually rated clergy higher, more favorably. And of course, uh, the the, the thought behind the decline in sort of uh, the honesty of clergy and their ethical standards was, you know, this article said, well, Social media, you, you know, you look at what, what pastors are doing, and obviously there's massive abuse within uh, churches, and we can see it. Uh, pastors decked out in Louis Vuitton and off-white and all this, and um, leadership abuse scandals are, hap- are just like all over the place, and particularly Christian leadership scandals are widely, widely publicized and more and more well-known. Um, maybe you heard this week of the pastor who admitted to the uh, cryptocurrency scheme that he and his wife were on that you know, led all of the church into it, and they pocketed $1.3 million of their parishioners from this cryptocurrency scheme. And we kind of know, well, that's not right, because we have some level of expectation of what is the Christian life, whether you're Christian or not. Christians to be holy people or hustlers. We kind of know deep down what's going on and what the answer should be. Should Christians be pawns of the politicians or people who practice the way of Jesus? So our passage this morning, you know, there's this kind of bringing together of these three different passages. If you look in your Bible, they're broken up into three sections. But I think Jesus is getting at something that's very, very important. Um, He's got his disciples around him. They'd been with Jesus for at least three years, probably around three years by this time. And I want you to think about this, right? These disciples had been with Jesus pretty much all the time, right? They were called, hey, leave your nets, come follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they spent their meals together. They probably heard him uh, teach hundreds of times. They'd seen him, you know, heal the lame and the blind and actually raise their friend Lazarus from the dead. Yeah, this group of people were his, his crew, his squad, you know, it's like, that's the group that they hung out with and who he hung out with. And, um, and yet, what seems really clear is they still don't get it. I mean, this is like the, near the end of the longest, well, Matthew's the longest, the second longest gospel that tells us of the life of Jesus. We're talking about the people that are closest to Jesus, that have been around him the most, that have heard him speak the most, and they're still not getting it. So should we be at all surprised 
that maybe we don't get it? Maybe our expectations for following Jesus might need a little correcting or reorienting. So anyway, here, right before Jesus' death, right before he is handed over to die, we have a little bit of Jesus teaching his disciples and really teaching us. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What should we expect following Jesus looks like? Okay, so the first thing is I want to I call it this. Upside-down success, okay? Upside-down success. A number of times in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus predicts his death. Um, and sometimes in the Gospel of Luke, he not only predicts his death, but he says very explicitly to his disciples, hey, you should expect this. Listen to um, Luke chapter 9, verses 22 and following. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Okay, and so think about this. Last week, we just heard Jesus take this Passover meal. He's celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples. And he takes the bread and the wine. He says, this bread that's broken for you, this is my body. And this wine that's shed, this is my blood. And he reorients this whole salvation story of the perfect spotless lamb that was killed as a sign Right, That they deserve death, but God passes over them and brings them to new life and salvation from slavery in Egypt. And he says, I'm reshaping this whole salvation narrative around me, but specifically around the fact that my body is going to be broken, my blood is going to be shed, and it's through that suffering that you're going to have life. That's what he had just told them. And then what happens? Verse 24, beginning of our passage. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was going to be, was to be regarded as the greatest. <sighs> so disappointing. Um, now, now I'll say this. I said this before when we were when we were praying. Those of us who are helping lead the worship and the service this morning, there's something in this that should commend Holy Scripture to you. That even those who were closest to Jesus, and even those who oversaw lots of the read, the writing of Holy Scripture, were putting themselves in the story as those who still didn't get it after three years. They're still saying, when Jesus has just said, "Look, I'm going to suffer for you, and through my suffering, you're going to have life," and they're like. Wait, I'm going to be better than you. Here's the thing, right? Now, the disciples were taken over by the very same things that plague us. The disciples were in love and desired the very th- same things that often we are in love with and we desire. Power and status being looked up to at least being looked up to by a few people, at least being better than some people. Who's better than who? Who thinks better? 
who does better, who votes better, who's better, 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 greater, right? And we actually, if, you, if you're attentive, this isn't the first time they got into this argument, even in the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to think about this, right? <clears throat> what is all this abuse about in the church? Pastoral abuse. It's so often one person thinking, I'm better. And I can take advantage of somebody else. Because I'm greater. Power dynamics to the detriment. Using power dynamics to the detriment of another. And what's all the fuss about in preachers and sneakers? Hopefully an account you know on Instagram if you're on there. It's about pastors abusing what they've been given. Flaunting some kind of wealth. Thinking that that is what is going to commend them. Look at what I wear. Am I not good? Am I not great? And Jesus is saying to these people that he has said this to time and time again. But you expect on some level that following me, me, me means being great. And he says, if you're going to follow me, actually, you're going to live in this topsy-turvy, upside-down success. not true. Jesus is saying that he who dies with the most toys wins. Don't buy that lie. It's not true that he who dies with the biggest bank account wins or he who dies with the most followers on X, formerly known as Twitter. And I wonder when you're going to have to stop saying that. Um, But rather, he who dies to himself wins. Or as one of Bruce's old cars had a bumper sticker when I first moved here said, Bruce Weatherly had this on his, one of his cars. He who dies the most before he dies wins. Or as Jesus tells us in verse 26, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. That is life in the kingdom. Now Jesus does go on to tell uh, at the end of this first little passage that they will receive a kingdom. And in fact, they will eat and drink in this kingdom. And he has just given them the meal of the eating and the drinking of the kingdom, which is a commemoration in his death. And he says that they're going to judge the 12 tribes. And of course, this gets into some theological nuance here. Um, But if you were a Jewish person living in that time, and you saw a new Moses uh, come up, really actually had been 40 days in the wilderness to begin his ministry. And he preached the Sermon on the Mount and these kinds of things. And, and he was forming, he, and he called people to himself, and he actually called 12 disciples to himself. You would have thought, oh wait, there's a new Israel taking place here. It's like there were 12 t- tribes that were brought out from slavery. Now there's these 12 disciples, and now they're going to be called judges. No, you have to hear that also from Jewish ears, which is not just like they're judging people like you did right and you did wrong, but they're leaders. So these 12 disciples were to lead this new Israel, this new church, in the way of Jesus. That is what he's saying. And actually what we know, as they ate the bread and drank the wine of the kingdom of God, they actually did begin to embody this reality that death comes before life. And what we believe is that all of the disciples gave their life as martyrs for Christ. They actually did begin to lead, to judge the new church by living the way of Jesus. So they began to to actually embody this thing that Jesus taught them. 
that the leader would be those who serve. What Jesus is doing in this first section, what I'm suggesting to you, is that he is actually giving you the expectations of life following Christ. It is an upside-down kind of success. It is not the way the world views success. I'm telling you, we have to hear this time and time again because just like the disciples who had already heard it, we're prone to saying, actually, look at me. Am I not great? Am I not better than you? Okay, the second uh, section here, what I want to suggest to you is that Jesus is actually teaching us to expect a faltering faith. That might sound a little bit odd, but let me read to you this whole section again, okay? Verses 31 uh, down to 34, okay? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And here's the fact, and Jesus is actually naming it for us, that we might have healthy expectations for the Christian life. Living by faith in someone you cannot see and cannot touch and cannot hear is very, very, very difficult. Um, The Christian life is not an easy, wide road. Not. It's not really easy to live an hour of our day completely in the faith of God. It's not easy to live a day that way, completely handed over to faithfulness and dependence on God, let alone a week or months or years. Faith is a long, hard journey. I mean, The fact is that most of us are just like Peter, and we way overestimate our faith. Peter's like, I'll go to prison and death with you. Jesus is like, you won't make it one day. It'll be this day's rooster that will crow, and you're going to deny me three times. And Jesus is saying that in absolute love for Peter, and he's going to hold him through all that, right? But um, just like Peter's story here that, that Jesus foretells, like we often are the, just like this. And Jesus is actually telling us on some level, expect this faltering faith. Faith is no easy journey. You must be sustained by God. Um, if you read through the Gospels, this is kind of great. If you read through the Gospels, what you learn is that Peter is not only one of the disciples, but he's one of Jesus' closest friends. Um, you have the 12 disciples, and then you have the three that seem to be closest to, to Jesus, and Peter's one of those. Um, he confessed Jesus quite a bit. Um, in John chapter 6, he actually makes this beautiful confession. You, you'll be familiar with this, some of you. He says, Lord, where else should we go? 
you alone have the words of eternal life. And that's a beautiful, beautiful confession. Um, he also ha- makes this confession elsewhere. Um, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. He has a sense of his sinfulness and the Lord's holiness. Like, these are good confessions. I mean, um, you might come to Peter, you know, in this, in this passage, and then, of course, the narrative that actually tells the event of his denial, um, and kind of look down on Peter, right? Kind of throw him under the bus. <laughs> that silly guy with such bravado. He thinks he's got such faith. Yeah. But what Jesus, I think, is actually teaching us is that we ought to actually expect the difficulty of the Christian life. It's no easy thing to remain faithful to Jesus. Faith is hard. Following Jesus is not easy. And there will be times, and I actually have no doubt that this has been the case in literally every single one of your life, lives, just like it's been the case in my life. Um, there'll be times when, when we have found it unbearably difficult to confess Jesus. Our actions, I mean, that's what we confess in our confession of sin. We've done those things which we ought not to have done. We're not confessing Jesus with our lives. When somebody asks us to confess Jesus with our lips, sometimes we, we stutter and we stammer and we're like, I don't know, I don't. Faith is hard. It's hard. And the Lord is actually preparing us to have proper expectations of following him. Um, expect a faltering faith. Expect a faith that it can be at sometimes strong and sometimes just full of fake bravado, sometimes weak. The third expectation that I think our Lord is preparing us for is simply, well, I want to put, I, I wrote this down because I was trying to make it easily memorable, memorable for you, but um, attendant adversaries, adversaries that are just kind of always present. They attend you. Um, attendant adversaries. So look down at the passage that starts in uh, verse 35. He said to them, when, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. And which is to say this, he's, he's saying, hey, do you remember when you were sent out, when I sent you out by 12 and then later by 72 when we were up in Galilee, and I said, hey, don't bring like a money bag or anything. Just be dependent on the hospitality of those who you're preaching to. And go and heal in my name and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And they went and they did that. And if you remember those passages, they came back and they were like, Lord, we were driving out demons in your name. And they were just amazed by what God had done through them. And they were like, You know, like, there's a, we did it. We did something great in your name. And, and people listened to us, and they were attentive, and they didn't fall asleep during sermons. <sighs> Not calling out any of you. I'm just saying, like, there were times when that happened. Um, let me continue, okay? He said to them, now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack, meaning take that too. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. 
Or what Jesus says in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I mean, one of the hardest things, uh, one of the hardest themes that we have in the Bible, and I think a theme that can be somewhat off-putting, actually, is that the Christian life is a, is a life of war. It's, it's a battle. The Christian life is a life of conflict. And it's not always just internal conflict. It can be conflict with those outside. And And let's face it, like blood and sweat and and tears are not really images that you're like, yes, sign me up. We'd much rather have the images of early on in the Galilean ministry. Where they go out and they do great things and they come back and like, man, this is awesome. And Jesus says, prepare for something else. Because when it comes, I don't want you to, be, to, to not expect it. There will be a time when you actually need to prepare yourself because you will find adversaries all around you. One of the things he says is, buy a sword. Did any of you kind of go like, what? Buy a sword? And then they respond this way, right? Verse 38. And they said, Look, Lord, we got two swords, which I'm already going like, part of me is like, they had two swords just hanging out in the upper room. Interesting. And he said to them, it's enough. Okay, now, this is a passage that's pretty debated, even in commentaries now, but throughout church history. In fact, um, in AD 302, Pope Boniface VIII, in his papal Unum Sanctum, uses this uh, comment about having two swords to justify the idea that the, that the church can wield both the sword of, um, of the civil authority and of the spiritual authority, so that the state can actually say, go to battle, or you know, come and repent. Okay, so this is a passage that's got a long history of debate. Um, but of course, it actually, you should be asking, what does this mean? Like, should Christians load themselves down with armor? What is Jesus teaching us here, right? Um, is, this, is the church supposed to yield the sword, or am I supposed to? When I've got adversaries, what's happening, right? Um, well, I think the best response, the, 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 what a good many commentaries say uh, that I read was, you have to understand this in the context of Luke, and in the most immediate context even of this chapter, and what happens later on in this very chapter is Peter's like, hey, Jesus told us to take swords, and so he takes the sword out and cuts the dude's ear off. And Jesus goes, He says, no more of this. Don't do that. So so what do we make of this? Um, I think the best understanding of Jesus saying it is enough is actually him saying, forget about it. You are not getting it. Because what he is saying is you must expect this idea that to be a Christian is going to mean that you have adversaries that people are actually going to make fun of you and sometimes hurt you and sometimes kill you even. And you must actually be prepared for this reality of following Jesus. 
you're going to follow me, you will not always be welcomed with warm, open arms, a hot meal, a listening, attentive ear. You won't. And church history has shown us that countless amounts of Christians have died because simply of their faith in Jesus. Expect adversaries. Expect others to disagree with you, to find your faith silly at best, ridiculous. Expect others to dislike you because you follow Jesus. Let me say this because I think this is very important. Do not expect adversaries because you are a grump and disgruntled and self-righteous. Sometimes Christians get those adversaries and they deserve them. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about, and I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about, but he is telling us, you ought to expect this reality, that many will not like you because you follow me. All right, let me get back to this original question. What did you expect the Christian life to be like? Maybe you don't really remember what you expected the Christian life to be like, so just sit in that for a moment. Yeah, let me me ask it this way. Um, What did people tell you the Christian life would be? Has it kind of met those expectations? The guy hiking in Colorado is what I would have expected. Sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes expectations are met. Jesus tells us to expect an upside-down success. He, he tells us to expect a sort of faltering faith, a faith that's hard, that takes work, a narrow road. Um, he ex- tells us to expect adversaries. And I just want to say, what else would you expect? Like, I mean, really, like, what, what else would you expect? Um, Jesus taught us that the way to life is through death. Jesus tells us that it is in giving that we receive. Jesus tells us that a cross comes before an empty tomb. Topsy-turvy. The servant is greater. Next week, actually, the next passages that we're going to look at, even in this very chapter, what we'll see is Jesus himself is in agony at the thought of his death. Um, It actually says there, while he is praying to the Father, saying this, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He's saying that it it says, Luke says that the angels were there strengthening him. In some ways, a faltering faith. It It wasn't easy for our Lord to go to the cross. Nevertheless, my not my will but yours be done. And in that moment, even of Jesus calling out to the Father in such a way, do you know what his disciples are doing? They're asleep. Faith is hard. And Jesus, of course, is going to be led to the cross. We're going to be looking at this in the coming weeks. 
people plotting against him. Him being arrested by religious leaders. Religious leaders dragging him before political leaders. Dressing him up. Mocking him. Making him carry the cross, his own cross, through the streets of Jerusalem. Out to Golgotha. People mocking at him. Spitting at him. You know, while he's up on the cross, he still has an adversary right next to him, mocking him. What else do you expect? What do you expect the Christian life to be like? To be a Christian is to follow Christ. To walk in the way of Jesus. I had written, and I want to sort of end this way, but I kind of don't. After the cross comes the resurrection. You know, the way up is the way down. And the Lord will lift you up. But I want to end instead just with this question, and I really do want us to sit for a minute. I know this is kind of going long. I can see those big numbers up there. Would you just simply ask yourself for a minute, what did I expect? And what does it mean for me to follow Jesus? Let's just take a moment and uh, ask, ask that of ourselves. Lord Jesus, we uh, lay our lives before you. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.